Cooking with Chopsticks. The truth about dictatorships. A podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chana. Hey, good evening, Li Wen. How are you doing? Good evening, Marcel. Very nice to talk to you again. So we recognized we decided to talk about Xinjiang today. Mm -hmm. Can you give a little like idea what Xinjiang for a born Chinese originated person actually is kind of image when you're coming from a uh, southern parts of China? Oh, in my generation, because I was born in the 1970s, we grew up with lots of romantic ideas about Xinjiang in the 1980s and 90s. So on the TV, you would watch like Uncle Avanti, okay. which is a very funny figure from <laughs> Xinjiang. And then you have like Uyghur girls dressing in this very colorful dresses and dancing beautiful dances. Yeah. And the people there are very nice and warm and everybody is a big family. So this kind of big family feeling at that time on the public media was very, very strong. I also know that later from my personal encounter as well as uh, reading, that in the 1980s and 90s, generally speaking, the Xinjiang minorities have a relatively better life because at that time, China started to open up and Xinjiang is a border province. So after a long time of isolation and poverty, they started to trade across the border with Central Asia. But then in 2008, there was already, like not anti-government, but more like a protest. and. Rumor saying that there was a Uyghur woman who was a suicide bomber. But at that time, even though I was in the forefront of news business, we knew more than other people. We knew there were terrorist attacks, but we did not know much. And then very soon there was a lot of protest. Also, for example, there were people spreading pamphlets in the bazaar. Yeah. There were 400 people arrested. So for people like me who are better informed, trouble started in 2008. But then, of course, in 2009, due to accumulated conflicts, 5th of July, you can call it riot, you can call it massacre or terrorist attack. The news about it reached the whole country. Well, today, Xinjiang is actually a worldwide subject. Still, when I talk to some people with no relations to China and no special interest in it, pretty regularly, you still meet people who say, Xinjiang, what's that? I, what was that? And they say, well, the Uyghurs. And people say, who's the Uyghurs? Mm. And when you, when you pro provide some details, uh, most of the people would finally say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I have heard about it. I've heard about it. So that means that it is becoming a more and more uh, prominent matter in the news and more and more common people are getting aware of what is going on in, in Xinjiang. And uh, there was a recent study that has been published on March 8th. And uh, this study is kind of, um, well, you might call it an atomic bomb, maybe. There's 33 scientists, academics, organized by the New Lines Institute, from Washington, I think, an uh, independent think tank. The core question is if the events going on in Xinjiang are qualified to be called a genocide. Basically, the study claims it is because the study is called the Uyghur Genocide. 
an examination of China's breaches of the 1948 Genocide Convention. And the authors actually say they apply for the first time, they say, the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crimes of Genocide. They gathered public documents, they gathered uh, eyewitness reports, media reports, and what they did, they also Chinese media reports, they gathered all public statements by Chinese Xinjiang officials. For example... There is expressions like two-faced Uyghurs, clean them out. All these kind of statements now fall back on their feet of the Chinese government who claims everything is a lie. So this report is really something, as I say, like an atomic bomb. It has the power of it because it becomes a very, very huge dimension when we suddenly talk of a genocide that might give the whole debate about Xinjiang and the Uyghurs and the events going on there. Well, let's call it what it is. It is torture, it is imprisonment, it is sterilization, it is rape, it is agony. All these things going on when I say the events. I've been too long in China probably because I <laughs> use this expression yeah. of event instead of the real things. So um, these things going on there, they labeled as, as a genocide that might give the whole debate a new a new spin. And you might know that especially we are in Germany very cautious by using the expression genocide because of our history and, and uh, the Holocaust. So I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how it, how it uh, will change the debate on, on Xinjiang. I think, I mean, the, the word genocide has been raised uh, by the Uyghur exile scholars and communities long ago. And this word has only been recognized in the past years, recent years, by different international society members. And initially, I was also very cautious because, first of all, because of the fear. For all these years, I dare not to speak about this topic because basically when you start talking about this topic, you are done in China. You will be listed in the separatist name list and you will face big trouble and also your family. But with more and more news flooding in, especially from international media, of course, I have to face the reality that it's a systematic genocide that actually, in the beginning, that is not intended so. Chinese government somehow put the whole Uyghur community under absolute control. Then after the radicalization of the protest in Xinjiang, the government simply decided we have to do something. The government's mentality is that they want to completely integrate, basically Hanize the Uyghurs. And it is, of course, a kind of genocide in culture, language, belief. To those who refuse to do so, they would be eliminated. And if you don't call this genocide... It's very hard. The, the Dutch parliament, and uh, well, in the first place, it was the Canadian parliament who labeled the, uh, the situation in Xinjiang a genocide. It's not binding, legally binding for the government, but the parliament takes a stance and makes clear they regard it as a genocide. The Dutch parliament also, I myself talked to the chairman of the Human Rights Commission in the Deutsche Bundestag. Given our history in Germany and the delicacy of that of that expression and the and the weight that is lasting on it, what she said was she understands 
that the Canadian and the Dutch government would label it genocide because all the preconditions are basically fulfilled, she says. And yeah, if you look at it, it is, of course, totally different to a like a killing machinery like the Nazis had in the Second World War or like in Uganda in the 1990s, maybe the most recent well-known horrifying genocide we remember, uh, the Hutu and the Tutsi in the 90s. In a few months, they were killed like a million people. So, of course, you can't compare that to what's going on in Xinjiang. But what's happening in Xinjiang basically has the same objective. It's slower, much slower, because people are not like, there's no mass killing going on. But yes, there's reports of people killed. People are disappearing. People are imprisoned for basically doing nothing but just being Uyghur. Women are put under strict birth control. What the Chinese government tried to achieve is to, to lower the fertility in the region. And when you see the study now by the New Lines Institute, you see that there's a lot of documents point to a very systematic lowering of the fertility rate by, well, forced sterilization, yes, but also by separating families. So forcing young Uyghur women to leave their region, to leave their village, to go working in, 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 in cities elsewhere. At the end of the day, bottom line is that the Uyghur population in another generation or two will be minimized compared to today. So it is kind of a step-by-step -step genocide. The study lays out pretty detailed that every single condition that is officially in the 1948 convention to fulfill the, the, the genocide assumption It's very, very detailed and there's not a single one they leave out. So I think this report is a real groundbreaker. And then, as you see, as I said, in Germany, the chairwoman of the Human Rights Commission within the Bundestag, she turns to believe, yes, it is a genocide. The Chinese side misses out to refute all the facts and evidence. And uh, they have to be aware that an ongoing coverage will be tainted in a negative tone towards the Chinese government. The only thing they say is it's all lie, it's all lies. But on the contrary, there is so much evidence. Look, for example, the Chinese ambassador to Germany, Wu Ken, he, he said in an interview recently, well, everybody can go to Xinjiang. Like we invited the chairwomen of the Human Rights Council of the United Nations, Ms. Bachelet, the Chilean women. She doesn't want to come, she says. We even invited the EU delegation. They don't want to come. <laughs> And this is basically, this is not true. You know, I mean, this is simply not true. So uh, the idea of the German chairwoman of the, of the Human Rights uh, Commission in the Bundestag said, okay, let's nail them down on it. Let's go there. So I think the situation right now is deteriorating for China from a PR side, from a PR point of view. They're really struggling. But have you ever heard of like an official China invites the UN to come to, to Xinjiang? I didn't get it. So they said they have invited them, but actually they haven't. Maybe, maybe there was like, like this kind of uh, informal talk uh, that someone said to the Chinese delegation when they met in New York or elsewhere two years ago. And they said, uh, guys, we really need to go to Xinjiang. What's going on? And someone said, yes, you're welcome. And maybe this is kind of the invitation they were talking about but an official invitation 
Um, I don't know about it. German politicians do not know about it. I think I think there's a lot of more politicians worldwide who do not know about it. So it's just another little piece in the mosaic of lies and false facts and fake news that uh, is produced by the Chinese propaganda machine and the government to mislead us about it. But I think the air is getting thinner, much thinner, because they just don't get away with it anymore. Because the subject is getting more and more more and more into the focus of the world uh, attention. And I think that China simply has a lack of good arguments. The more they feel pressured, the harder they kick, the harder they bite, and the harder they lie. So we'll see how it goes on. Unfortunately, they simply don't care. Yeah, because, look, there are so many outlandish human rights violations that has happened in China systematically. Even a Nobel Peace Prize winner died in the jail in China. What has international society done? Nothing, right? You know that Xinjiang has a concentration camp, and you, we know that uh, there were forced laborers there. And what did Volkswagen do? They set up a branch in Xinjiang, and their CEO can just deny that such things happen. So all these kind of collaboration or kind of silent avoiding the, silently avoiding the topic is simply because the international like the western democracies are coveting chinese market you know business talks all china has survived the sanction after june 4th they have all the experience already and this time it won't be much different unless there is a strategic planning from the Western world to systematically compete with China. Do you mean like economically or...? or... On all frontiers, ideologically, economically, and then business, trade, and technology, all these things. There must be a consensus within the West, the really mature democratic countries that they have to somehow gain more leverages and reduce the dependence on Chinese markets. Unless they achieve that goal, they won't do anything to China. It's just that simple. Well, I mean, a side effect of that might be or when Xinjiang becomes a hot topic for the masses in the world, that everybody in the world knows what Xinjiang is and what's going on and that we're talking about a genocide there. Uh, I think there is a lot of very aware consumers in the world who might turn their back to China, so to Chinese goods, because they just say this is the, the only mean I have to, to support that. And in the general atmosphere we are right in worldwide, or at least in the saturated societies, is that there's a lot of people who want to do good, who want to have a uh, social impact and who are more concerned about uh, about this is like this post-capitalism worldview right you're saturated and then you start thinking about the things that are bad in the world for example environment and stuff and also these human rights violations in xinjiang uh, the consumers who say uh, i don't buy this product anymore i can imagine that there's like kind of a development within the next five years this is just an idea i don't know if it's really uh, going to happen but I don't know. I mean, look, 1989 was the brutal slaughter of civilians. It was very dramatic. And then after that, gradually, 
people forget it. And now we have a series of events. Even the death of Hong Kong's democracy. Has anyone boycotted anything from China because of Hong Kong? No. Then you have pandemic coming. And、uh, this whole pandemic is shitty enough. How many millions have died and are going to die because of the lies that Chinese government has committed? And also, all the people died in Wuhan, for example. Did people boycott Chinese goods? No, they keep on consuming. Actually, China's manufacturing power is now growing very fast. The whole world is buying goods from them because they are cheap and they are fast. So I see very little motivation from Xinjiang alone. And just wait, next will be Taiwan. It's simply the because the whole West is getting so content with itself, they want to just go on with their comfortable life or their little life, and they they don't think they don't have the vision or ambition to keep the world order anymore. It started because the United States has given up its leadership, and also European Union has no teeth.、Um, getting back to to Xinjiang, have you ever heard of the name Emma Riley? No. Emma Riley is a is a she's she's working for the Human Rights Council in Geneva, and、uh, she's a lawyer. And in 2013, already seven years ago, eight years ago, she blew the whistle that within the United Nations bureaucracy, it was a regular habit apparently to answer requests from Chinese officials when they wanted to know which dissidents. Will be invited for the next Human Rights Council hearing on a certain topic, and for example, that was Uyghur activists, Uyghur activists, and the Chinese delegation to in Geneva sent a request to the UN and asking, okay, whom do you invited for the event in four weeks? And they gave away the names. And guess what happened? Oh yeah, right. That I remember. Yeah. Of course, they、uh, were harassing families in in China, and that was a、sure. that was a, a practice that has been ongoing for many years. Emma Riley says it is still happening today. I I had her on the phone last week, and、uh, we were talking quite a while. And she says still it is happening right now, but publicly is not admitted. Publicly, it said no, it doesn't happen since two thousand sixteen. It doesn't happen anymore. The funny thing, well, funny not for Emma Riley, is that she actually is still employed by the United Nations, but most of the day she's sitting in the cafeteria. <laughs> because she doesn't get any issues anymore, and they can't kick her out that easy. So she's still there, and、uh, well, yeah, and trying to make her case more public, and the UN is trying to actually hide it as much as possible. She claims. So、uh, yeah, I mean that of course speaks to your argument that it's going to be hard to find enough support if China. Creates facts invading, let it be Taiwan or whatever they do,、uh, South China Sea, or do they do something else in Xinjiang, or take the Diaoyu Islands, Senkaku Islands in in the conflict with Japan or whatever. And then it's a question, yeah, as you as you raise it, will there be enough support from the world? I mean, admittingly, it's not very encouraging to hear that the UN has bureaucrats that give dissident names to Chinese delegations to help them harass their families at home. It doesn't encourage us also when. The World Health Organization completely endorsed China, saying in the early stage of the pandemic, which their predecessor never did in two thousand and three. So if there has been a large change in the UN power structure in like more than a decade, that China has 
ever since exerted its deliberate influence within the UN. China has been three times elected as the chair of the Human Rights Committee. How the hell did that ever happen? That is because China has mobilized the support. Right, exactly. The support of the of the developing countries. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, well, there and you go. How yeah. did they mobilize such a support? Money. With aids to the country, with money. And the Western society simply watched this happening and didn't do anything about it. Still, I believe, I hope, I hope that last year was a turning point. I hope. It's the first well, time I really think that there's a sentiment, a common sentiment worldwide that people say, okay, no, enough is enough. We'll see how it's going to be processed into politics. I, I don't know, and, and into certain actions. But at least the first time in, in, in my personal perception that, that, well, at least the Western liberal democracies, or including Japan and Australia, of course. So the, the, the liberal democracies in the world start to realize how big the threat is, accompanied by other authoritarian tainted countries. The first time that the liberal democracies realize how big this threat is. And I still keep hoping that we really turn this awareness into action, into stronger action, that we protect our institutions in the United Nations, transnational institutions, that we preserve our principles, our values we're talking always about, and that we not will accept that any authoritarian state, in the first place China, will interfere in these things and will set the new standards. Of course, I mean, the, we should have, we should always bear the hope that uh, the accumulative effect of the past violation against human rights conducted by the Chinese government would result in a final awareness uh, and a turning point. The problem is that how are we going to turn? We don't see any plan. Let's say there might be a turning point when, for example, China finally launched a war against Taiwan. And then the world suddenly realized, that's it. This will be the Pearl Harbor of the world. Maybe that would happen. But when that happens, do we have a plan? The best minds in Western democratic society, do they already have a plan? about what the world will be in the future. But maybe this is how human history has always been. Nobody has a plan. And when there is a disruption, then suddenly everybody got a plan. You just make do with it. Things, yeah, from that point on, things start, things start to evolve, right? You have to re have this disruptive moment. Yeah. It looks like mankind is doomed to always wait for the disruptive moment instead of just, you know, being... Uh, prescient. Uh, pre yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And prescient, yeah. That, that is true. But about Xinjiang, uh, what I want to add to it is something that I recently read from some historical articles and, and books about how Xinjiang was integrated, so-called, in the, in the past decades, ever since the PRC was established. It was, in the beginning, very brutal. The general Wang Zheng from the People's Liberation Army slaughtered village after village, who, whoever dared to have any dissent or, or rebel against the government's uh, Chinese new government from PRC will be punished severely, and the family too. And after that, somehow they kept the peace uh, with brutal force, as well as moving large bunches of uh, Han people from inland China to Xinjiang. 
and build up this military corp called Bingtuan. So they are half military, but they are also like a kind of state-owned enterprises that they run their own farm or they run the oil field or minery fields and etc. They are like the chess put in between different Uyghur communities so as to grow and somehow just isolate them into smaller and smaller oases. They gradually grew into monsters, taking up all the good opportunities, job opportunities, and the Uyghurs were more and more sidelined in a way. Except the time when I said the 80s and 90s, when the policy was relatively lenient, the Uyghur people and the minorities in Xinjiang could cross the border to do trade with Central Asia with their language and cultural advantages because they are ethnically and language-wise similar to ethnic uh, people, the Central Asia and even Turkey. So they had in a short, brilliant time. And then after that, state-owned enterprises again, and also the local officials' family, Wang Lechen, who was the governor of Xinjiang for many decades, basically planted in every profitable sector his own family or connections. And that ate up all the job opportunities, really, like to the last bit. Even those Uyghur who are highly Hanized, the Uyghur young people who graduated from Chinese universities, couldn't find a decent job unless they have a connection. For example, their, their parents are like an official in Xinjiang. Otherwise, they wouldn't even find a common job simply because of their ethnicity. That part, I mean, mutual colonization also then, first of all, they... The Chinese government brought the Bingtuan, the military group, to Xinjiang, which were mostly men. And then they realized these men need wives. So what they did is that they there is a famous story called Ba Qian Xiang Nu Shang Tian Shan, which means eight thousand Hunan girls get up to the Tianshan Mountain, which is in Xinjiang. They really shipped more than eight thousand Hunan girls to Xinjiang to provide mates for these soldiers. And the same thing, of Today course, Today they do it a bit, a little, a little easier, sorry. Yeah, they do the opposite. Yeah. Today they're promoting so, Han yeah. Uyghur marriages, right? This, is, yeah, yeah, this yeah. is what the study also said. So they, they're promoting that, that Han men marrying Uyghur, Uyghur women. They're not only promoting, they actually coerce them. They force them, yeah. 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 So I've seen a video of a very sad Uyghur girl in the Han wedding. The husband was very happy, grinning all the time, but the Uyghur girl was like, obviously just cried and have a very cold face. Everybody was dancing around. You look at that, you know this is forced marriage, but of course there's no way you can verify where this source is from. And then I heard, of course, other arranged sort of um, working opportunity for the Uyghur girls to work in inland China to the east coast, like Shandong or the Han cities in China, basically just to ship them away from their men. So it's a sort of very convenient strategy of the government. They did that all the time. They have done this not only to the Uyghurs, of course, and to the Han people as well, ever since the founding of People's Republic of China. So, yeah, we'll see if the notion of genocide will finally pour down to the white masses or to the politics in general. Xinjiang maybe be labeled the next official genocide of the world. 
it is a very compelling subject and uh, I'm sure that we will in the future we'll talk more about Xinjiang and what's going on there. Uh, thank you for your time and your input today and uh, I suggest hear you soon, okay? See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. with chopsticks the truth about dictatorships a podcast with Chin Li Wen and Marcel Chanel